Hi, Unorthodox listeners. It's Sophia. And I just wanted to let you know that there's going to be a little bit of swearing on today's episode. So if you don't like the words, off, oh, and that's a good one. Maybe this episode isn't for you. Also, I wanted to say, hi, dad. I love you so much. Thanks for listening. This has been your obscenity warning. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Who goes first this week? Look at that. <laughs> it's about damn you time. Speak, I listen. And Tablet Senior Writer Liel Leibowitz. Hello, Shalom, Ahalan. Our Jewish guests this week, no Gentile, two Jews. Our judge, Ruchi Fryer, her honor, Ruchi Fryer, and Paula Eiselt who is the director of the documentary about Rookie Fryer. Rookie Fryer is a Hasidic woman from Brooklyn who not only started the women's only EMT and ambulance service, Ezra's Nashem, but then ran for judge and became the first ever Haredi woman judge in America. And there's a documentary about her that you can see. It's called 93 Queen. So we have Judge Rookie Fryer, and then we're going to talk to the uh, the director of the documentary, which is the most amazing documentary you will ever see. It's it's If this thing isn't adapted to like a major Hollywood, like, fiction movie with like Sandra Bullock as Judge Ruchi Fryer, like then there's no justice. Our major commentary, the best documentary you will ever see in your entire life. <laughs> we swear. That That's really right. sells it short though. No, I love documentaries, but uh, anyway, but this one, it really, it grips right. you. It's like a novel. It's amazing. It's, it's, um, it's a show up first and then this documentary. <laughs> Nothing in between. <laughs> um, anyway, guys, uh, what is up? What is going on in the lands of Butnik and Leibowitz? Well, this is embarrassing, but I can't figure out how to get the bagel emoji. Like, we talked about it. Everyone's up in arms. My mom texts me being like, so how do I get the bagel emoji? And I'm like, I actually honestly have no idea. Do you need to update your phone? Like, I'm officially old. Like, I have no idea. Here's my question about this. Um, first of all, we should we should catch people up on that bit of news, which is that finally the International Consortium of the Cabal of the Elders of Zion or whoever okays the, the uniform code for emojis okayed the bagel emoji. And then... Am Outrage. I right? Or was that was that a joke that they've now added cream cheese to the no, bagel no, no. emoji? It's true. Like people got so mad. Not only did they add cream cheese, they also fixed the bagel consistency. They plumped it. it they plumped it. It looks <laughs> it does right. look like a bagel you get like at a bodega now. <laughs> and by the way, you can imagine this meeting. Everyone at that meeting deciding about this are all like Fucking Jews, man. Really? Can't <laughs> those, fucking please these people. Those New York values. Yeah. We're like, I'm sorry, that doesn't actually look like a bagel, and it's the biggest problem I have in the world right now. And like, and that's why we never created an emoji for you guys before. So once I figure out how to get them on my phone, you're gonna wait 30 years for the filter fish emoji. <laughs> I'm like, can you imagine like those like those like gray balls with in, the little the, gr- the little orange <laughs> carrots on top? I would just send you gefilte fish emojis all the time. All day long. Here's my question. What exactly is the occasion to send a bagel emoji? Is it is it RSVPing yes to a bagel brunch? I mean, I, I honestly, there's not a lot of times that I that I think, oh, bagel back at you. Seriously, when do you use this? I feel like this would be something I would use if I could figure out how to freaking get it on my phone. I would send it all the time. Just right. like bagel, 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 bagel. Bagel, 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 bagel. Bagel, bagel, bagel. Why would you ever say anything else? Are you coming to my son's bris? Bagel emoji. Scissor emoji. (laughs) Scissor emoji, bagel emoji. Baby emoji. (laughs) So, all right. So Stephanie is, Stephanie's having to store us about the bagel emoji. Liel, what's up with you? This has been an eventful week. So so as as you know, uh, Lisa, my lovely wife, had very minor surgery and is doing very well. 
But uh, throughout this past week, I, I've had to you know mainly care for for two children. I had a lot of interesting realizations about what happens to a man when he's you know then has to be the primary caregiver for his kids because your true inner self really comes out. And Mark, I bet that like if you are in that situation, which I'm sure you've been, you're probably some version of you. Like maybe a little bit more tired, maybe a little bit more stressed out, but still, Mark. Is that right? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm the the somewhat crankier, more impatient right. version of me. See, so I, I turn into Ariel Sharon in the decisive <laughs> moments of the Yom Kippur 1973 war. A it's classic. like, uh, um, everybody, this room is very messy. We're probably never going to clean it. Probably never going to get out alive. But here's what we do. You, you flank the stuffies and the picture books. <laughs> you, you clean up the mancala. You give us cover. It's like a, absolute kind of military regime. I think if my kids had access to smartphones, they'll be Googling boarding schools about now. They didn't find it soothing, like the, the firm hand with which you led them while Lisa was recuperating. They're like, who the fuck is this guy? Why, why is he presenting us with like diagrams? <laughs> why are we doing push-ups I mean- at four in the morning? <laughs> The big story of my life the past week was the two elder daughters are obsessed with Scrabble, which is really an amazing thing. And and Ellie is now beating us regularly at Scrabble, and um, it, which is weird because so her obsessions are, are painting or oil painting, gymnastics and, and Scrabble. Oil like, painting, gymnastics and and freaky three letter words you would never, yep. ever use in any conversation ever. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's our news. Let's talk about the Jewish news of the wider world. We've covered the bagel emoji thing, which is very, very important. Um, so my favorite bit of news of the Jews this week is really is really not news at all. Some of you might read the New York Times wedding pages on Sunday. I've actually been reading them since I was about 11. I find them fascinating. I remember when they used to say where the the bride and groom went to high school. It would say, you know, which prep school they went to before they went to, you know, Smith and Dartmouth and whatever. I just find them sociologically interesting and also kind of sweet. Um, So this week, this is for all the people who think they're stupid. I'm going to tell you the amazing bit of Times wedding uh, trivia that I got this week, which was, I'm just going to read this. This is from the the New York Times on Sunday. Dr. Andre Henry Goy, G-O-Y, and Jeffrey Bryce Ornstein were married October 13th at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in East Hampton. The very Reverend Dennis Brunel, an Episcopal priest, led the ceremony. Dr. Goy, a hematologist-oncologist, is the chairman and chief executive of the John Thoyer Cancer Center at Hackensack Meridian Health. Um... Blah, 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 blah. He is a son of the late Clara Goy and the late Joseph Goy, who lived in Entremont, France. So Dr. Goy appears to be a Goy marrying Jeffrey Ornstein, which I think is amazing. It's it's Goy Gavalt. I mean, so it's like Jeffrey Ornstein first is, you know, and these guys are, are, are older. Dr. Goy is 61, right? So, you know, 20, 30 years ago, at some point, probably after the 80s, Jeffrey Ornstein comes out as gay to his parents and, you know, they love him anyway and, and all is well and it's beautiful. They're like, you and can marry a hope- guy, just don't marry a Goy. That's right. Then their, their one hope is we'll at least bring home a nice Jewish boy and, and hopefully he'll be a doctor, right? So here we are. It's 2018 and, and Jeff Ornstein goes home to his parents. One out of two ain't bad. And he, and he brings home, he says, well, I found a doctor. And he's a hematologist. <laughs> and he lives in New Jersey. He's from a nice family, a French family, very cultured family. But he's not Jewish. What's his name? His name is Andre. Andre what? Andre Goy. <laughs> Here's the thing. Are they are they going to like merge their last names? Is this going to be like Jeffrey Ornstein Goy? 
Or Goystein. That'd be kind of amazing. Absolutely. And here I should say, I should do a little soul bearing and say, lest you think that I'm making fun of Time's wedding announcements, all of you with a Google search bar can go find mine. So there's there's your homework for the week. Uh, also in News of the Jews, this story is bonkers. This is from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The headline, study shows regular tefillin use can protect men during heart attacks. I am living forever. Jewish men who wrap leather straps around their arm as part of their daily morning prayers may also be protecting themselves from the worst effects of heart attacks, a study found. A pilot study by researchers at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine found that regular users of tefillin or phylacteries may receive cardiovascular health benefits through remote ischemic preconditioning, that is, briefly restricting blood flow and oxygen to the heart and then restoring it. The results were published last month online in the American Journal of Physiology, Heart and Circulatory Physiology. The study involved 20 Jewish men from greater Cincinnati, including nine who wore tefillin daily and 11 who did not. The researchers measured their vital signs and blah, blah, blah. The tefillin wearers had better vital signs. So we'll first say this is only 20 Jewish men. The other interesting fact, the other problematique of this study is maybe it's that they're from Cincinnati. Maybe it's tefillin. Maybe people wrap tefillin differently in, in Southern Ohio. How the, I don't understand how they came to this study. <laughs> <laughs> like who funded this study? Funded by the tefillin makers, by the phylactery makers of greater Louisville, right? By the way, what an amazing uh, TV like doctor show this would make. Oh my God. But it's interesting because it is your left arm. Isn't that where you feel like your left arm is the one that goes to your heart? Correct. This all does make sense. Right. Because that's exactly the purpose of of the fill-in, right? It is? I mean, you, yeah. I oh, but mean, I mean, not the medical part. Well, but they're all intertwined because, you know, I know medicine likes to pretend like it just discovered some shit about the human body, but the reason you put on the fill-in the way you put it on is very specific, right? It's aimed at your heart and your brain, and the fact that it would have positive impact is not that surprising. It's technology. But look. It's wearable. But look, <laughs> you don't need to wear fill-in to live a long time, and proof of that comes from our last item this week of News of the Jews. We've been down this road before. Every year, they have the Miss Holocaust Survivor beauty pageant in Israel. This year, a new winner has been crowned. A 93-year-old great-grandmother who was in Auschwitz has been crowned Miss Holocaust Survivor. It's Tova Here Ringer, born in Poland. Comes. Now living Birkenau. in Haifa. She was chosen out of 12 contestants. She lost her parents, four sisters, and her grandmother to the Nazis. And she said of her victory, it's something special. I wouldn't believe that at my age, I would be a beauty. Mazel Tov Tova, and of course, we salute you with the song that was written specifically for women who emerged victorious in this beauty pageant. Two years ago on this show, we debuted this song by the Jubador, Jim Nabel, Holocaust Survivor Beauty Pageant Cutie Pie. When you thought that you'd never get out alive, your Holocaust Survivor Beauty Pageant. Think of the horror people do unto each other Think of man's search for meaning as he dies Think of everything you've lost and can't recover but know why You're a holocaust survivor Beauty pageant. Cutie pie. We 
are here with Paula Izelt. She's an independent filmmaker and a graduate of NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. 93 Queen is her feature film directorial debut. Welcome, Paula. Thank you. We love this movie. It's an amazing (laughs) movie. Thank you. How did you decide that you wanted your first movie to be about Hasidic women in Brooklyn starting their own ambulance service? (laughs) It just, I didn't decide. I, I, I came across this article about six years ago on Vos is Nice. I don't know if you know what that is. Everyone reads that. Everyone. It is a joy. Um, so I was perusing for fun. And Tell our listeners who are missing out on the sorry, fun. Sorry, it's, it it's an online orthodox, like more ultra-orthodox um, news publication. It's great. Um, but it has like a, a lot of news stories that happen within the... Um, it's like truly a local paper, but online. Right. And it's for like the Hasidic community, also, you know, the um, Haredi community. And, you know, it's just an insider look into what happens or what's going on in, in, in that part of the Jewish community. So I was looking, perusing for fun. And I came across this like little blurb about a group of Hasidic women who were starting an all-female ambulance corps because the existing corps Hatzala does not allow women. So I was just like, what? Uh, two things struck me. The first was that Hatzala does not allow women. I grew up in a community with Hatzala, and it just never occurred to me that women were excluded. And I was really shocked with myself that I had not noticed the lack of women. Um, that disturbed me. The second was here were a group of Hasidic women who were not taking no for an answer. And I had just never seen that behavior or defiance from Hasidic women before. So I thought, you know, this is something different. Something groundbreaking is is happening here that, you know, most people may not realize from reading that, like what that means. But I, I felt that it was worth pursuing. Where did you grow up? What 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 is your background? I grew up modern Orthodox um, from Long Island. What part? Um, Merrick slash the Five Towns. Classic. Represent. <laughs> and so when when you um, coming from that background, looking at the Hasidic community, I assume that you know there's some familiarity, but but pretty much as uh, you know distinct from your day to day life as as it will be for you know completely secular Jews who are just you know, not very aware of the community, right? So I had, I, I did and do have a, a connection to the Hasidic community. My uncle is Hasidic and he lives in Borough Park. So growing up, um, that was very much, you know, in my family conversations, um, his Hasidic, Hasidut. So can you explain what Hatzala is? Hatzala, I'm saying it wrong, and who they serve and what mm-hmm. their role is within the community and also like the the hospital stuff? Yeah, so Hatzala is actually the world's, that's correct, the world's largest volunteer ambulance corps. It came about in the late 1960s when 911 took an average of 30 minutes to answer a call. And the community at that time was a largely immigrant, non-English speaking Jewish community in Brooklyn. So um, a few men came together and said, you know, we need to get, you know, culturally sensitive care to this community and quickly. So it started off, you know, um, just like that. There was a couple of guys who like went on their bicycles with like, you know, oxygen tanks to go help people. And 
at the time when it was forming, there was supposed to be a women's division. 300 women were trained to be a part of this ambulance corps. And at the last minute, the rabbis came out and said, no, women can't do this. So fast. Because? Because they're women. They're women. That's it. Why, why would they be able to help save But was it like they wouldn't be leaving in the middle of the night, like they would need to care for their kids? Or was it like they can't do it? What do you think the... They can't I'm, touch other people? I don't, I don't think it had to do with halachic, you know, Jewish law issues, because there is no Jewish law that prohibits that. Um, it, it's, it's just, yeah, it's cultural, it's misogyny of women can't do it. The idea sort of sprung with the sense that like a woman could be in need, she might need these guys to come to help her, she might be giving birth. And all of a sudden, there's like 10 men in the room, and she, you know, someone who's used to covering her hair and dressing modestly might be in a state that is is, is uncomfortable to her, right? Yeah. So it starts from a very logical place. It, exactly. And it's kind of, you know, you would think in a community where gender is so segregated, it would make sense. They would welcome women only caring for women. So according to that, it actually, you know, makes no sense that these men would be against that. But it really comes down to power and turf. You know, men have claimed EMS in the Orthodox community and to now have women come in is a threat. Um, furthermore, it's really, you know, um, I've spoken to many women from all different cultures and it's a very natural thing for a woman in a compromised position to want a woman there. In fact, FDNY, the Fire Department of New York, when they have a call and they have a female EMT um, on board and the patient is female, they will send the female EMT by policy first because that's just makes the patient more comfortable. And in fact, it's also you know, in Borough Park, really a women's rights issue because there have been stories of women who have been too embarrassed to call for help and a woman has died because of it. So um, it, it's really a very crucial thing to have women, you know, have the option of having female healthcare providers and also just to give women who want to provide help, allow them to provide help. So what was the first encounter like? The first time you walk over to, to Judge Fryer or anyone else and say, you know, I kind of want to make a movie about this. Are they into it? Are they hesitant? They're hesitant. Um, when I, I did, you know, go to Ruchi's house, because on the bottom of that article that I just mentioned, it, it said, for more information, contact this woman, Ruchi Fryer. And there her phone number was on the internet. <laughs> I love it. So convenient for me. Call so. 718 718- <laughs> Tell them Vosiznia sent you. (laughs) Literally. That's what I told her. Like, I found you. So I I came uh, to her house and I explained to her. And and when I met Ruchi, I knew that this woman was, you know, trailblazing and a star, literally a star. Um, But, you know, making a film within the Hasidic community, especially about women, is taboo. I mean, it's ridiculous, you know, that that's not something that happens, you know, but I I, I felt like if there was someone who was going to make it happen, it was going to be me. Like I, I had to tell the story. So how'd you convince her? So the two I came, I said, I told her two things. The first was, you know, I am Orthodox. I do have an understanding of the Hasidic community. You know, in, street you know, enough. You know, you know, you know your stuff. Right. You're I know. For real. 
I'm for real. I, you know, I, I understand the laws of modesty, SNES. I understand, you know, even the standards in that community. And I was committed to, you know, honoring that and filming in a dignified way. And, you know, there was things that we can relate upon. And that was very important to her that, that I understood that and was going to respect it. Um, the second was, you know, we were talking about media and how that's, you know, especially secular media, how that's taboo in, in, in Borough Park because it's so negative. And I said, you know, Tarekhi, if you don't like the way the media is portraying the Hasidic community, you have to give them another story. Um, there's kind of this cycle that happens. The community, the Hasidic community is very insular. So media is shunned, outside media. So then the outside media you know, tell stories from an outsider perspective. A lot of times it's largely stereotypical or negative. So the community sees those stories and says, look, you know, they we, don't like we, us. We told you. Yeah. And then semites Exactly. And then they double down and become more insular. And I said to Rocky, we have to break this cycle. Let me help you break it. You know, let's show an insider perspective. I'm, getting, I'm giving you a voice. I'm giving the women a platform. Tell me your story. I will help you tell it. So everyone who is listening to this podcast is going to watch this movie because it's amazing and you absolutely have to see it. But until they do, tell us, tell us the story. Tell us, tell us what these amazing women did. So in a nutshell, um, (laughs) but it is a nut that's hard to crack. So please do watch it. Um, It's about a group of Hasidic women who started the first all female ambulance corps in the U S despite a lot of opposition from within the community. And that core called Ezra Snashim is led by Ruchi Fryer, um, who is a trailblazer within the Hasidic community. I don't know how many people know about Ruchi, so I don't want to give spoilers of what happens in the third act. But um, she is a groundbreaking woman that has changed the culture of the Hasidic community through her actions. And the story really takes you through the ups and downs of getting this ambulance corps on the ground. It deals with the external conflict from, um, you know, the community of how they react to to a female ambulance corps, um, namely Hatzala. You know, Hatzala is not happy with these women in the least. And then it also, you know, takes a deeper look into internal conflicts between the women themselves. And, you know, how do women reconcile changing roles and feminism and women's empowerment, you know, among ourselves? So that is the structure of the film, those conflicts, and there is a very interesting third act that comes through. So the interesting thing is, is I don't think this is giving too much away, is that the the married women in Hatzalah didn't want to include single women because they thought, you know, it's not right. There's, you know, there's sort of laws of, of modesty, of decency, of what you're supposed to be doing as a single woman. Um, were you surprised that, that that thing sort of came to a head in that way? And why do you think it was? Totally. Um, when that storyline started to surface, I felt like this is really at the heart of of this film and what it means to change a community from within. And many times change is not linear. It's messy. It evolves. It takes a lot of time. And to by not allowing single women to join that was trying to placate, you know, rabbis in the community and go according to community standards. So 
if so, you know, led by Ruchi, you know, if they were seen as too radical, then they would not be accepted. So they had to compromise and walk this very fine line where they can push, push for change, but also hold back at times so they can still make that change. One of the things that I wasn't sure of at the end of the movie was if there was this silent majority or or substantial amount of men who were actually pretty moderate on these questions. Because what you get is you get Ruchi's husband, who obviously is supportive. He doesn't say a lot, but he's obviously, he loves her and he's supportive and 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 this works for them that she's out there uh, running this ambulance corps. And then it's not giving too much away. It's part of the movie that she runs for, for civil court judge, right? So she's this mm-hmm. major career woman. And then you have the anonymous callers and the hate mail and stuff from from the men of Hatsala, right, of the of the male ambulance corps. And they are, you know, they seem like real misogynists and they really think this is just inappropriate and they post cruel stuff about misogynist stuff in online fora. But obviously in the end, several dozen women, married women, uh, it works for their marriages. I don't want to say their husbands let them go, but it works for them that they can go. And then when when Ruchi runs for, for judge, obviously a lot of men end up voting for her, even though there's a, an opponent who makes an issue of the fact that she's immodest. So like, where did you sense that the, the men of the community were during all this? It's a great question. Um, I believe that the majority of the everyday men are okay with it. Um, I think the opposition comes from the leadership. Um, and a lot of people are just too scared to speak out against that. But, you know, the last point you made that men voted for Ruchi, I think, is key here. Because when nobody was looking and they're in their voting booths, they voted for her. Um, so I do think that the average Hatsala guy, you know, in Borough Park is okay with it. And um, actually at some of the screenings we've had, you know, because we were um, at IFC for six weeks, which was amazing. Uh, we had some Hatsala guys come to the screening with Hatsala t-shirts, you know, really, you know, like we're here. Like to and, protest or just well, to... Well, we thought that was what was going to happen. And actually at the premiere, the FDNY sent a fire truck to like park in front of IFC just in case. Oh my um, <laughs> just in case the goon squad of Hatsala <laughs> wants to start shit up. Wow. Amazing. So the Hatsala guys came and, you know, Rookie and I looked at each other like, you know, what's going to happen? And at the end of the film, they came up to Rookie and they said that they, they showed up just to show support. Oh. That they um, they support Ezra's Nashim, they support Rookie and the leadership does not represent them. So that was really a an amazing moment and, you know, progress, you know, and so that that was great. So I think there is a disconnect between the average guy and the leadership. And I'll just add that the Hatzala leadership in Brooklyn makes policy for every Hatzala in the U.S. And how many are there to give our listeners a sense? Chapters? Yeah. Does, I mean, dozens. And are they mostly in the Northeast or are they all over the country? They're probably mostly in the Northeast, but they are in California, um, Florida, um, where there anywhere where there's like a big, large Orthodox Jewish community. Cleveland, I'm sure, has one. Um, there is Hatzala presence. Your movie came out in, in this really interesting time in the national conversation. A lot, you know, we have the Kavanaugh hearings. We have a lot of uh, we have best selling books about female rage. You know, this this seems to be 
kind of a, a, a point of transition in the relationship between the sexes. Do you think the secular world has anything to learn from the Hasidic community as reflected in your film on how to resolve these issues, how, how, to, how to fight these wars better? Thank you for asking that. I'm so glad you did because the crux and the, and the soul of this film is change from within and how do communities change from the bottom up and any community. You know, I believe that sustainable change comes from people who are living within a community and recognize a need for that and are and, and know how to communicate with their community to make that change. And Ruchi's story is also a testament of what happens when you empower women. You know, she goes from leading women within her community to then making change for the entire community. So um, I think this story is completely universal because it's, it's dealing with the issues that the entire nation and world is dealing with right now. How do we make progress, especially in conservative communities? So do you think that when these Hasidic women look at, you know, their, their secular sisters who don, you know, Handmaid's Tale outfits and, and have protests that feel very kind of militant, do you think that their message would be like, hey, guys, you know, it actually works better if you do it more gradually from inside the culture? I think it, yeah, I mean, I think it depend. it really depends on the culture and what kind of change you're trying to make. It does work better from the inside in this instance. You know, that's not to say that some change isn't about breaking down a system because I, I don't think, you know, it's one size fits all. Like there are some systems that need right. to just be dismantled and you can't take your time from within. But I think in the Hasidic community, I think in other communities that are more closed, um, having outsiders come in and say, you're backwards, you're terrible, will only make them double down on that. So there's a scene where Rocky's campaigning and she's giving out flyers and she has two different flyers. She has a flyer with her mm. name and her face and a flyer with just her name. For women, she gives the flyer with her face. For someone who is a man, she gives just a flyer with her name on it. How do you film a movie about people for whom that idea of their picture is such a big deal for the opposite sex? Yeah, that's a great question. And in that moment, that really showed how Ruchi understands her community and knows how to speak and be heard in her community. So while she personally does not have a problem with her face anywhere, you know, she's all over the place and she's in this movie and all the women in the movie are are totally fine, of course, being in this film. Um, so A, it shows that the stereotypes of a community does not always apply to the individuals, that these women are okay with it. Um, but also she respects, and whether you agree or not with this, I don't know if I do, that there are people in the community who who would find a flyer with her face very off-putting and they wouldn't listen to her message. So I think that's her diplomacy and, and her knowing how to message herself. But so there were no concerns about like while you were filming what you could see, like we see the women with their hair covered. Was there ever like a negotiation about that? Yeah. I mean, anyone who's featured in the film um, is fully on board with that um, or else they wouldn't be on the film. And there are women whose faces are blurred out that you can see um, that were not okay with it. And that's why they're blurred or other people were cut because of it. So there definitely was lots of talks about that. There was a woman who um, was using her computer and then decided, you know, that she can't be seen doing that because of internet. So we cut every scene that had her with her computer. Paula, for anyone listening right now who sees the movie, admires it, and thinks, I want to do what she does. Um, 
I want to hear something about your journey to being a documentary filmmaker and and maybe also the the documentaries the the, the uh, if people watch five documentaries and yours is one of them what are some of the others they would that you would have them watch Wow it's a it's a lot there Being a documentary filmmaker is it's very rewarding but very grueling um it's really is kind of um survival of um the fittest and the richest basically <laughs> it's you, you you just it's a long long journey um there's not a lot of money in it at first or i'll let you know if it ever happens um but it, it the documentary community is full of passionate amazing people who want to make change in the world and being in that community is, is very rewarding. Um, I'll say that I, you know, I, I went to NYU film school. That was not something usual from, from my modern Orthodox community. I, you know, don't know anyone else in my age group that, um, that did that. And as a woman and, and as, as a mother, it, that also had some, you know, add some challenges to that. But I was lucky enough to meet an amazing um, professor at NYU Tisch. His name is Marco Williams. And he mentored me for a while. So I think it's really important to find mentors and find those people who will who will give you the time and really help you. So um, he was with me for, you know, he's the EP executive producer on this film and um, was a great resource. And, you know, filmmaking is collaborative. So it's really key to, you know, just surround yourself with a great team. You need to have people who you respect and who you enjoy working with because it becomes like a marriage. So you really have to be able to jive well with with people. If there's something to, if there's one thing to watch, um, I would watch OJ Made in America. It's a documentary on on OJ Simpson that won the Oscar a couple of years ago, and it's one of the best pieces of documentary I've ever seen. It it goes very deep, um, not only into OJ but race in America and how the OJ story is re- really tells the story of 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 our country and, and, and what it means um, racially here. So if our listeners want to see 93 Queen, how do they do that? Great question. So right now we're doing a, if you go, first of all, everyone to go to 93queen.com. We have a bunch of screenings coming up at various festivals around the country and we're doing community and private screenings for the next, I would say, six months or so. It will then be on iTunes and then streaming slash, you know, Amazon or one of the streamers. It was on PBS. We had a great broadcast premiere in September. Um, So just check the website for screenings that are coming near you. And I'll just add, sorry, we're rolling out um, in Israel, actually the first week of December, doing a big Israeli tour. So if anyone... Paula Izel, thank you for being uh, one of our Jews of the week. And thank you for making 93 Queen. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Thank you. Thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Frances Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. 
They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. And now, the star of 93 Queen, Judge Ruchi Fryer, who's on the phone with us from Brooklyn. So we are grabbing you at 9.30 in the morning. Um, I just want to know, what have you done already today? Because you seem like superwoman. Uh, well, actually, um, this week I'm on night court, so I work in the evening, and I don't get, I don't get off the bench until 1 o'clock in the morning. So I have a bit of a late start, but I have so many appointments that I have to do before I get on the bench tonight. So it's kind of like, just like on a roll, kind of. <laughs> so, Judge Fire, thank you so much for joining us. We've all watched the movie that was made about you uh, a little while ago. And it's, it, first of all, did you like the movie? I think it was great. Did you? I mean, yeah. You have to understand that when the filmmaker approached me about five years ago, we had no idea if the organization would get off the ground. We had no idea what would become of it. And it, it just, we had no idea what the storyline would be. So... But I love it. And then we watch the movie, and of course, the storyline is that you found Ezra's Nashum, this organization, ambulance service, EMT service that that serves uh, from women in in Brooklyn. And then you decide to run for judge, which I guess is something you'd been thinking about for a while. And so you run a campaign. You're you're getting this organization off the ground. You have what six children? Is that right? Kidding her? Yeah. Yeah. So right. So. Um, you know, I think a lot of our secular listeners are, are watching this and they have this sense of like, how exactly, do, first of all, they don't understand how anyone with more than two children does it, right? Because if you're on the Upper West Side, like two children is this huge, huge family. So, you know, people with multiple, multiple children, and then you have a career and then you have this nonprofit work. So when we say like, what have you done already this morning? I mean, okay, your, your schedule is a little hinky this week, but are you up at 4 a.m. To, to make that night's dinner? How does it all work? How do you piece it together? <laughs> Well, I don't get up at 4 a.m. No, I don't. Uh, I, I, you know, I pray a lot and I pray to God to help me because really without without God's help, I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't have, you know, accomplished the things I've accomplished. But, um, you know, you take it one step at a time. And, you know, I think that I've done things really slowly over time. And when you do things slowly, you just it kind of like grows on you and you just like, it's like kind of when you have your children, you have them like one. Although I did have twins, the two at a time. But it's, it's just like when you do things slowly and you, you don't even realize you yourself how much you're capable of doing when you do something that's hard in the beginning and then you kind of get adjusted to it. So talking about doing things slowly. So before you were a judge, you obviously went to law school. And before that, presumably you went to college. Right. What, what was that like, you know, that decision? Uh, how, how did your family, your community support this when you came and said, hey, you know, you know what I'm going to do in the next four years? So my family was very supportive. And again, it happened slowly over a long period of time. When I graduated high school, I was 17. I was a legal secretary and I worked and I supported my husband who was going to sit and learn Talbot and Colo. And then after he went to college, it was my decision that now it was my turn to go to college and he was very supportive. But I was 30 at that point when I went for my for my um, bachelor, and I did it very slowly because I was still having my children. So that that process took me six years, and then law school took another four years. So I wasn't forty until I graduated law school, and at that point, I 
I felt I was just too old to work for anybody else. I just started my own law practice. <laughs> and that's kind of how it happened. No, I mean, the community that you're in, you're, you are a Satmar, is that right? No, actually, we're Bobov. Just Oh, I, you're Bobov. Yeah, my my first law office was in Monroe and Curious Joel, and my client base was Satmar. So I have a lot of affiliation with the Satmar community. They actually put my name out, out there because they were my first clients. I see. Okay, so as a as a Bubba Verchasset, like, w- how what is the attitude towards women's education in that community? How much of an unusual outlier are you? So women's education in the Hasidic community is is on a pretty high level. The the academic level in the elementary school and high school is quite high. And now in the most recent few years, there are many college opportunities as well that have opened up because. While Hasidim don't change, opportunities have changed. And now that there are college programs that are amenable to the Hasidic lifestyle, they have separate classes for men and women, they accommodate the Shabbat schedule and the holiday schedule. So many, many more of the Hasidic women are going into um, into college and getting better jobs and getting degrees. A lot of them are going into special ed, the therapies, OT, PT, social work. So thank God there's Lots of, of, of movement in that in that regard. And so did you personally experience or have you seen pushback from the community despite all of those 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 growth that growth? So I haven't received pushback from on my personal journey. I only received pushback when I got involved with Ezra Snushem, the women's EMT group. And that's when I I was just unwittingly, you know, drawn into a project that I had no idea was so politically charged. I had no idea. I thought it was just about, you know, helping women during emergencies. And then when I realized that women were supposed to be part of the original organization, I don't know if that really came through in the film because it was there was just so many details that were involved here. But women were supposed to be part of the original hospital when it was formed back um, in the early 80s. And then what happened was back then there were some politics, and the women were told to leave. And then these women who are now in their 70s were always hoping that at one point they'll be able to get back into the organization because they do great work and they've been around for over 30 years. Then, But that never happened. And it wasn't until about five or six years ago, maybe a little bit more, when the rabbi in upstate New York in New Square, incorporated women into the Hezbollah of New Square. And at that point, the Brooklyn women said, okay, maybe now our time has come, and that the rabbis in Brooklyn will now incorporate um, incorporate women. It seems like such a simple and, and just logical concept, the idea of women helping women, especially in these sort of more vulnerable situations where you're in an ambulance, you might be giving birth. It was sort of surprising to see how much pushback there was because you guys were really coming at it from a place of wanting to protect women and help women and, and, and with these with these laws of modesty in mind. Were you surprised at how much how much sort of vitriol you received? Yeah, I was quite surprised. I was quite surprised, but it only made me more determined, more determined to um, to go ahead and push for this. At the end of the movie, you're talking about feminism, and you say, well, it's a secular concept, and so it doesn't, you seem to say it doesn't really sit right with you. 
But obviously, you know, you give credit to the work that secular feminists have done. But, you know, I'm I'm curious. Um, it seems like you don't describe yourself as a feminist. And I'm, I'm curious, what are the things that you disagree with secular feminists on? So thank you for asking that question, because it's really important that I, I clarify this. For I'm not really sure who your listeners are, um, but um, it's important that people understand where I'm coming from. So what happens is when the feminist movement reached the point where it was moving and moving and moving, and it reached the point where in the Jewish religion, women were coming forward and requesting changes to the way the religion is practiced. And that's where I, 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 I can't go down that road. So when there are women who, and, and I'm not here to be judgmental or to tell anybody what they're supposed to do or what's right or what's wrong. I'm just speaking for myself. So I'm a Hasidic woman, and when I go to the, to the synagogue, I sit in the women's section, which is called the Ezra Smashing. Right? I sit in the women's section. Um, you know, I, I, cover, I cover my hair the way the Hasidic women cover their hair, and my husband covers his head the way the Hasidic men cover their head. They have their head covering. My husband has the way he prays and follows the rules that are established, how the men are, are supposed to pray. And I pray the way we were taught women are, are, are to pray. And women do not need a minion. The woman's prayer goes directly to God, so I pray without a minion. So when, when the religion started to get intertwined with feminism, that's where the problem lies. So I don't like to use the label of feminism. But when we talk about women's empowerment, women's capabilities, what women are capable of doing, and how God created women with such um, special, um, you know, in, in Hebrew, the term is Adina Yaseira. We're taught that women are created with an extra level of understanding. So women, in my opinion, are given a, put on a pedestal in Judaism. And therefore, I have to say that once feminists came into the religious sphere, I have to identify myself as being separate in that regard. So that, therefore, the label of feminist doesn't work for me. But I have many friends who do classify themselves as a feminist. And when it comes to the, 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 the notion of women being empowered, women, women being entitled to equal pay, I'm, I'm aligned with those thoughts. But because I am who I am and because I come from the Hasidic community, I don't want to leave my community. And if there's something in my community that I feel needs to be changed, I believe change should come from within. No community in the world is perfect. We're all human beings. And I live in Borough Park, and I'm very fond of my neighborhood and my community. Unfortunately, some people who have left the community, they try to make change from leaving and being outside. I want to bring change from within. So I, want, I need to follow the rules because I, I, I respect those rules. Judge, you, you are part of your community, and yet every day you go to court and, and you see, shall we say, not the best of our community, you know, the <laughs> secular community. What, what lessons, uh, if, if you were to step aside from your role as judge for a second, what, what, what can we in the secular community learn uh, from the Hasidic community? What, what values uh, would we do really well to adopt like right now? So I, I think that the secular community um, needs to know that the Hasidic community has respect for you. And 
I mean, I myself have always been involved in, in outreach work, and we don't, we're, we're taught not to judge anybody. God is the only judge. So sometimes when you have, we come into contact with people um, who are secular or more to the left or not as religious, or like I say, labels don't really work so well with me because I'm kind of so blurred when it comes to that. Um, we respect you as as Jews, as people, and we understand that you may come from different backgrounds and practice religion differently. The fact that the Hasidim are, are, are nonconformists doesn't mean that we don't respect people who are different. But very often, because we're so insular and because we have the luxury of being insular, and don't always come into contact with people who are different. I am one person who does because of my job. And many other people do because of their work as well. But sometimes, sometimes there's just like um, misunderstanding. And, and, and people tend to think that we're being judgmental. So if there's anything that this film can, can bring out is I wanted to bring the outside world into my home to give everybody a glimpse of what the average Hasidic home is like, um, to late, help you understand. And when the filmmaker approached me five years ago, like I told you at that point, I had no idea what the organization was going to be. The reason why I was, I was convinced to do it, even though my initial answer was no, for a long time it was no, she explained to me that by allowing the outside world to see who I am, to see my lifestyle, to, to, to break the stereotype of the Hasidic woman, I'd, I'd be able to not only shatter the stereotype, but also sanctify God's name by doing that. And that we call in Hebrew, Kiddush Hashem. And that's the reason why I agreed to do it. If I could, you know, make bridge that gap between Jews that, that practice religion differently, from Jews from different communities, from Jews and non-Jews, from Hasidim and non-Hasidim, for everyone to understand that Deep down, we're all human beings. Deep down, we both want good things. We want to have happy families and happy homes. And, and, and sometimes we just have to understand that there are certain issues that we won't agree on, but we can agree to disagree. So even though I may not agree to you having different labels put on, put on me, we still have so many areas that we do agree on. And um, what I've learned from my experience and my journey is that if you're upfront with people, if you're honest, if we tell them, look here, a pleasure to meet you, but since, you know, I, I'm Hasidic, I'm a woman, I don't shake hands with men, and you explain it, you'll get the people's respect. And that's, I think, um, what's important. Has it ever been difficult for you to balance these two these two sides of your of your life? You know, not, not just shaking hands, but, you know, if someone wants to meet you on a Saturday or someone, you know, like, have you ever sort of encountered pushback either from the people you work with or the people you see in court? So I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I really haven't because um, I've always been so open about who I am and where I come from. And being very clear, you know, this is who I am and these are my restrictions and I'm not imposing them on anybody else. But please, you know, please respect the way I practice my religion. And, you know, when you, when you come out like that, People are very friendly. I mean, I was in court. I, I, so the courthouse that I sit in, everybody knows me by now. The first week I, I was being introduced, I would say, don't you know, I'm the only woman here. Let me shake hands with the man. But, you know, 
once I broke through the ice, it was fine. Then I was in another courthouse the other day, and I was approaching one of the security guards, and I with a big smile, I say, I'm Hasidic, I don't shake hands with men. And he laughs, I wouldn't shake my own hand either. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I haven't really, I mean, thank God, thank God, you know, I've been blessed, God has been watching me, and I pray that he continues to watch me and guide me. And I do think that my religious background um, has really helped me. I think that, you know, the, the, uh, the values of the Torah, of, you know, compassion, honesty, charity, and all those, those um, Judaic ideals have, have helped me. Judge, um, so we're going to hit you with four quick final questions because we know you have, uh, you have 20 chickens to go cook. Um, the first is, okay, so let's say I want to go Hasidic, and I mean this totally seriously. Let's say that I was drawn to the Hasidic lifestyle. There's so many Hasidic courts, traditions, dynasties to choose from. Why Bobover? Why would I pick you guys? What's your special, you know, your, your thing? <laughs> All right. So, you know, every, every Hasidic group has their own different, uh, you know, different style. I mean, basically, it's the same concept. It's the, the Rebbe who draws the Hasidim. Some people are drawn to this Rebbe. Some people are drawn to a different Rebbe. Sometimes you're Hasidic because you're born into this family and your father was and your grandfather was, your great-grandfather was. You know, so sometimes you have people from the outside who do come in, who, who do become, as we call, Balei Tshuva. No, I don't. But, I mean, pardon me for interrupting, but, you know, if I go Breslover, there's a lot of drinking. I get a trip to Ukraine every <laughs> year. If I go Chabad, then, you know, I, I get to do the outreach work. Like, if I go, what, what's in it for me if I become a Bobover? <laughs> okay, so just quick off the bat, I'll tell you, um, the, the shul, the synagogue is beautiful. The prayer services are so beautiful. Um, you know, it's a big, it's a big shul, so many people, um, everybody knows each other, and, and just, it's just inspiring to go and pray. Just to go sit there and pray is, is, is beautiful. All right, I'm sold. Now listen, what are you running for next? Are you stopping at <laughs> civil court judge, or is, is there something on the next? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see myself, with God's help, rise up in the court. So who knows? Supreme Court sounds like a nice place. What do you think? Well, that actually brings me to my last question, which is, are you pro-Kavanaugh or anti-Kavanaugh? Did you want oh. him to be confirmed or not? Okay, so, well, judges can't uh, answer questions like that, unfortunately. I can only answer questions about my personal life and things like that, but nothing that, you know, relates to politics or government and things like that. I would Got love it. to see you yeah. on the Supreme Court. I will just say that. Here, <laughs> here. You have my vote. So one of the most amazing things about the film, like forget your career and as Nashim, like you braided a challah so quickly. I've never seen anything like it. You weren't even paying attention. Oh, <laughs> well, that took years of practice. That took many years of practice. Do you go four, four strands or three? It was four strands, right? No, it was six. Oh, my God. <laughs> A real overachiever. Boom. I like that. One strand for every Amazing. child. Uh, yeah. Judge Rochi Fryer, thank you so much for being our guest on Unorthodox and, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much. And yes, Hatzlacha, good luck to you all. All right. Thank you. Thank you. crew it is time for some pod biz tonight may 16th i will be moderating a zoom conversation with rabbi sharon Brous and shy held about each of their new books that's at 6 p.m eastern and the final event in my unpacking the book series with the jewish book council and the jewish museum this one's on zoom so no matter where you are i hope you can make it 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. The entire unorthodox team, the three of us and Josh and Shira and 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 Sophia and all of them and Noah, we're hopping in the unorthodox Winnebago to tour the country. We have live shows coming up in Cleveland and in Houston and, and San Diego and Seattle. But most urgently, we have to tell you about the one October 24th at the JCC in Manhattan. You'll know that we're there because the unorthodox Winnebago will be parked out front of the JCC in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. And we should really say, Mark, we've had some really great... Um, live shows before the JCC, but honestly, compared to this one, they're all garbage. <laughs> this is the best. This is the best we've ever been. It's true. Now, this one, this one sets a new standard. Uh, this may, this may have to be the last one. We may have to retire after this. Um, three guests: the extraordinary writer who, who who has been on our show. She grew up modern Orthodox. She writes for the New York Times Magazine now. She she writes celebrity profiles. Read her piece on Jonathan Franzen. It's extraordinary. Her name is Taffy Brodesser Ackner. Then. Kevin Allison, who does the podcast Risk, in which celebrities come on and tell embarrassing, shameful, ridiculous stories. This is a podcast with millions of downloads. It's hosted by Kevin Allison, who's an old-time improv comedian uh, star. You would know him from the state on MTV back in the 90s. Kevin Allison will be there as our guest. And then, Liel, you, you got to tell everyone, who is who is the third guest on October 24th at the JCC of Manhattan? The third guest is MC Paul Barman, uh, who MC Paul Barman, MC Paul Barman, who Mark MC Oppenheimer. Paul Barman. If you decided, uh, rather <laughs> than going to Yale and and having your lovely intellectual life in New Haven, if you decided to be a rapper, you yeah. would be MC Paul Barman. You would be um, smart and and fond of puns and rapping about circumcision, which pretty much describes MC Paul Barman. Yeah, I should say that MC Paul Barman, I know his work a little bit. What I know is that all of my friends who are obsessed with really cerebral hip hop, like real hip hop heads, love MC Paul Barman. I've been hearing this name for 20 years now. I am a huge, huge fan. I'm and it's so gonna excited. Be amazing. It's going to be a great show. <laughs> so go to jccmanhattan.org. You'll join us on October 24th, and then you'll hang out after the show because we're going to have a little party, a little own egg at the JCC. Unorthodox wine from South Africa, unorthodox brand wine, is going to donate a case of wine that we are all going to consume. We're not leaving that building until we're all drunk on unorthodox wine. October 24th, JCC Manhattan. The babies were all the same, at least for the whole sake. Stepped on an undisclosed rate. Get your nose ache. Y'all flows is fake. Yo, delay. He who wants to be my protege. Me, me too. So parrot back it. I'm an underlined carrot bracket. 
greater than or equal to, but greater than four stars, greater than straight A report cards, greater than poor sports and divorce courts or sports bars. What's the mission? Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox, an extraordinary assortment of letters this week. We got letters about everything under the sun. Our, our listeners were in every aspect of our lives. Was, was there a letter that people were mad about? A, an alphabet letter? Was there one subject that people really went crazy about this week? Oh, God. It was my saying that JCCs didn't used to be called the J and that this was this weird like rebranding that I hated. And and we got so much mail about that. And we'll, I'll well, read like, one of those knew, letters. As you said it, that we that this was like a, the new mishmash of our times of 5779, the mishmash, you know, mishmash debate. Listen, I was right on the mishmash, mishmash, and I'm right <laughs> now. It's not the J. It's I, I completely agreed. You know, and if you I'll, think it's I'll, a J, call us the U. <laughs> so Sarah Lesser wrote in about that actual topic, and I'll, I'll start with her letter. She writes, while I'm often a hater about branding schemes, I want to suggest that calling the JCC the J has at least some genesis in organic language development. In Michigan, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we often referred to the West Bloomfield JCC as such, at least in the BBYO world. That's the B'nai B'rith Youth Organization. Young people love to abbreviate. Actually, she writes, She writes. young people love to abbreviate. I'm not sure what the JCC goes by these days. I live in Chicago, where I've never actually been to a JCC, but I think they might also have expanded their name with a donor name. I enjoy the show. Thanks, Sarah Lesser. All right, Sarah. So you're saying that in, in Detroit, it was the J. I should say that my friend Adam Pesson wrote in and told me that also in the 70s and 80s in St. Louis, it was the J. So the evidence that's, that Liel and I are wrong is accumulating, though we're not ready to give in yet. I am going to read this letter. Hey, J. Crew, did I really just listen to Mark's rant about calling the JCC the J? Really? I'm 40 years old and have always called the JCCs I grew up with the J. My whole family calls them the J. Everyone I went there with, everyone in the community, everyone who worked with them called them the J. This guy is so angry. Like You can feel the rage coming off this letter. Every, every Gentile who ever worked out there <laughs> called it a J. <laughs> This is not new, Mark, nor rebranding. The friggin' 92nd Street Y has been Y for how many generations? Y'all have been on a kick of ranting about this is Jewish and this isn't. Do you listen to how insulting this sounds? You routinely regale the experiences of every Jew who didn't grow up in the tri-state area, isn't Ashkenazic, and every convert. Why do you even ingest question someone's Jewishness because they do or don't use a top sheet or foil? This is from old debates on our Facebook group about whether top sheets or aluminum foil are Jewish. I see so much embarrassment from fellow congregants in my synagogue because they don't know X, Y, or Z. And people are always calling themselves a bad Jew because they don't do X, Y, or Z. We don't need more of that. Yours, Michael Seidel. Yours, Michael Seidel, director, the J. <laughs> this is amazing because, first of all, Michael, thank you for writing. And like, we are nothing if our listeners won't argue with us, right? So I'll begin by saying lots of love. Big, We're going to hug it out when this is over. But it ain't over yet, Michael. Your letter segues. I just feel like there's a lot of pain that you're expressing in this letter because it segues from the fact that I went on, you know, a, a somewhat irreverent but ultimately silly rant about calling the JCC the J all the way to the fact that people in synagogues are embarrassed because they always feel like they don't know the prayers. And I guess I would just say, like, if you really feel this way, I'm concerned that you've missed the entire point of our podcast. Because what we are about is saying it's all good, right? I mean, on the stuff like, do you know the prayers in synagogue or have you read Torah or do you keep kosher? We are full of universal promiscuous love. We reserve the censoriousness and the judgment for the things that have no stakes at all, right? The silly stuff. like We are, it, if you will, unorthodox. 
That's right. So it's like, I think the point is like the stuff that gets us really, really angry is not whether or not you intermarry or or keep kosher. It's whether you fucking call it the J. But so it's interesting because this did unleash, you know, there's a very, Mark, you're not on Facebook anymore, but there was a very, very, very active discussion. And my favorite part about it was like, I'm from Cleveland and we call it this. And someone's like, oh, me too. Which one are you talking about? And they like are talking about the same one, um, which I love. But someone says, Alana Wiesel, who's a great listener, says, um, Mark, I get that you were rubbed the wrong way by corporate rebranding to be hip, but you're coming off as a little curmudgeonly on this one. Smiley face. <laughs> like like analog smiley face with a space in between it so it doesn't turn into an emoji. So I think there are people who were like, Mark, you, you went too far. Who cares? Well, okay. I will say, though, I did get a letter from someone who said that the National Association of JCCs, whatever they're called, actually has rebranding materials if you want to rename yourself the J. So I was actually onto something, which is there was a branding company involved. There was a consultant who did come in and say, hey, you really want to pump up your membership? Call it the J. So Liel and I were right. Like there is. No, the conspiracy true. is absolutely true. Wait, can I share you the best part about this Facebook conversation? Someone says, um, I grew up in Toledo and we called it the JCC or the J. I believed it merged with the Y and it is a combined Y and J. In Detroit, I've never heard anyone here called the J. Then someone says, I also grew up in Toledo and called it the J. Now I live in Baltimore where people call it the JCC. And someone says, are you related to Judy, Alan, or Bella? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to name these people, but then it continues. By that logic, are you related to J, A, or B? (laughs) Guys, Judy is my mom. Alan and Bella are my uncle and aunt. (laughs) Gotta love Jewish geography. Someone else chimes in. I'm also from Toledo. Hi. <laughs> it almost makes me want to get back on Facebook. So, and then someone replies, hi, Ben. I haven't seen you in about 20 years, probably. Then someone says, then Justin is your brother. My best, my parents' best friends were Bella and Al. Anyway, it seems like we need to go to Toledo and then they all to find this married. family. Oh, my God. All I can say is Toledo's... Hey, Toledans, you can have you can have five percent off the tickets at the at the Mandel JCC of Cleveland. I, I mean, I'm not sure if you can, but I think you can. If tell them I said you could. I mean, you got to come up to the Cleveland show. I think that at would, the J in Cleveland, J, we need the Toledo Toledo in the house. Look, Michael Seidel, th- thank you, thank you for feeling passionately. As you know, we we do too. Here's a happier letter. Hi, unorthodox team. I just finished the most recent episode and heard the Shonda that football is taking root in the Oppenheimer household. Football is undoubtedly the most goyish of major sports. Baseball is the Jewish sport. Think about it. Football is the lowest common denominator, meets almost exclusively on Sundays, and is rather evangelistic about getting more fans. Baseball has a long tradition, has weird and obscure rules that are subject to interpretation, and doesn't change on a whim. Seriously, Mark, you need to get your daughter on team baseball before it's too late. And Liel, as a Cubs fan, it's hard for me to say this, but the 2015 blah, 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 I'm not even going to go on because I'm bored already. Look, I grew grew up a huge Yankees fan, and then I got to high school and I had home homework and it, it died off. But I, look, I'm agnostic. I think it's amazing that my 11-year-old daughter can throw a perfect spiral. I'm just going to leave it at that. I love her fandom for football. On that note, Matt Saunders, who wrote this beautiful letter, is 100% accurate. This goes on for eternity. Uh, it has a lot of obscure rules that you don't entirely understand. And your entire like faith system revolves around you know arcane things that happened you know, 200 years before you were born. Yep, that's pretty much us. Final letter, and I think I think it's beautiful to close with this one. This letter is so weird and so gorgeous at once. Dear unorthodox, I need to apologize to Liel. To be honest, I used to flip off. Mark, the- you could you could stop there, Mark. <laughs> I, I like I like this letter. You like it already? No, Except I, I need to apologize to Liel. Said no one ever. It actually gets better from there. To be honest, the letter goes on. I used to flip off the car radio whenever he started talking, and sometimes I still do. I used to be very religious. I took tremendous joy in my community and in learning. In college, I started off studying biblical Hebrew. I felt called to be a rabbi. 
But as I became more politically aware and started formulating my own opinions, I got really disillusioned with the Jewish community. I think ethno-nationalism is wrong, and I didn't want to contribute to political support for Israel. I got shouted down again and again in shul, so I left. To me, Liel and his rants represented everyone who made me feel like my relationship with Israel was more important than my relationship with God and Torah, like I was less of a Jew for following my conscience. But listening to your conversion episode, I'm several months behind, I heard Liel say something like, if it's calling out to you, walk toward it. He was talking about the Jewish soul coming home. I can't tell you how grateful I was to hear those words. It reminded me that I can and should keep chasing that connection with the divine, the love that used to call out to me and still does. Liel, thank you for giving me the confidence to follow my heart again and for helping me see beauty in someone with whom I usually disagree. Yours, Sophie. Hallelujah. Inshallah. Alhamdulillah. What do you make of this, Mark, Stephanie? This is so interesting. It's a, it's a kind of, that's a sort of weak word. It's kind of shvach. I mean, and everything's interesting, right? But it really is. Here's this woman who initially saw you as emblematic of the kind of hardcore Zionists who made her feel uncomfortable in synagogue. And I know those people and they have made me feel uncomfortable in synagogues as well, right? <laughs> Have they made you feel uncomfortable in recording studios? Yeah. <laughs> at dinner parties. At dinner parties. At pizza parlors. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, so she falls away from, from, from spirituality, but then it's that guy. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the sweaty, you know, Ariel Sharon imitating, uh, you know, hummus bathing um, Zionist who says the thing that makes her think, well, I should go back to shul. I just... It just shows life is beautiful and strange and complicated and changeful. I don't know. I I also think it's a credit to Liel. Let's say that. I think yes. that there's a way in which he like. You could go on. I'm, I'm liking this. The, no, no, no. It's complicated because I think there are things that we disagree on a lot. But I do believe I, I am moved by and I think our listeners are too. these moments where you you have such deep respect for for the, the Jewish faith um, for just Jewishness and 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 that that authentic connection and even it, while you like hate on bagel Jews you actually do really respect people connecting with this religion however they can that's right I have um, nothing and but I think love and no I'm talking pride I think that there's there's times when we see this other side of you and it's you're not just like this blowhard you play on the radio okay no no give me my money <laughs> to me this letter is kind of the best letter we've ever gotten I think. You know, Mark, I, I, I think you're you're a thousand percent right on this. Here's the thing. So reading this letter, I was generally puzzled because, you know, the writer says something like, you know, I have a problem with ethno-nationalism, which really in a way, even if you take away the, the Israel part of the debate, which I understand is, you know, loud and often shrill and annoying, but there is something inherent uh, about, about this here religion, right, with its insistence on chosenness and with its peoplehood component that is deeply predicated on, call it ethnicity, call it nationalism, call it some combination thereof, that is really hard to shake. You can't just say, oh, you know, this is like a universal globalist faith. It really isn't. Uh, but then on the other hand, I think the only real way to have this conversation is to recognize exactly what you said, that there are, uh, that there are warm and caring and passionate people uh, on on either side of this question, and and there really isn't any other way than to resist a tendency uh, to demonize these people, and 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 no other way to proceed but to recognize the fact that anyone who feels pride, anyone who feels joy, anyone who feels curiosity, anyone who feels any connection to what we're doing here 
is 100% welcome in our house. Sophie, thank you for your letter. If any of you have feedback for us, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a message at 914-570-4869. We have dozens of voicemails with your superstitions, your family superstitions for the Halloween show, but we could take them for a few more days. So if you have a family superstition that you grew up with that may or may not be Jewish, but is specific, you think, to your family, or at least seems uh, specifically embraced by your family, call us and leave a one-minute long voicemail with your name and where you're from and the Superstition at 914-570-4869. Come to our live show, write to us, love us, and keep on listening. Subscribe to the podcast. We don't ever want to miss you, not for a week. Stephanie, do you have a Mazel Tov this week? I have a Mazel Tov. It is to my Grandpa Al. It's his birthday next week. <gasps> Grandpa and Al! I need to send a card so it gets to Florida on time. But if I do this... This is the episode that airs before his birthday, and he is the best. Awesome. Uh, Liel, you have a Mazel Tov? Yes, uh, to to my lovely wife, Lisa, who is uh, quickly recovering and will soon uh, resume her duties as commander of, of the family ship. Lisa, Rafua Shalema. We, we, we are excited for your return to full health. Uh, my Mazel Tov is a, is a simple, uh, homely one. It's just that... Um, I do want to give a shout out to my daughter Ellie's teachers at Ezra Academy. This, she moved schools this year. That's tough. Transitions are tough. And they've just been so warm. The teachers at Ezra Academy in Woodbridge, right outside New Haven. Um, you know, I didn't think any of my kids would ever be in private school or, or Jewish day school. Um, I'm a huge public school supporter, but she wanted to make a move. And uh, they've just been so lovely and welcoming. So mazel tov to them for the community that they've created. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and putting newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live to book us or to advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. If you want to wear some unorthodox swag, hit up bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in shirts, mugs, and stickers to put on yourself and around your coffee. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast, on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at S. Butnick. Join our Facebook group. There's a lot of cool post-show chatter and roundup in the Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Talushkin, and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, which is online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by the rabbis at the temple in Beechwood, Ohio. Cleveland, we're coming to you. Live show coming up. We hope to see rabbis Jonathan Cohen, Roger Klein, and Stacey Schlein, as well as Rabbi Emeritus Richard Block at our live show. We also hope that cantor Catherine Wolf Sebo will be there too. We only bat the designated hitter rule at Argo Studios. We once had a network, but now we sell our own ads. So email us, jcross at tabletmag.com, and write to us. Shalom, friends.